Want to know why your interiors or images don't look like the ones you see on your favorite social media feeds? What if I said I could let you know and show you what's missing and how to transform your spaces with clarity and confidence? The truth is creating beautiful interiors is simple when you know the right strategies, but most people go about it the wrong way. This is why I created the Styling Masterclass. It's the only program that simplifies the art and science of styling, giving you the clarity and confidence to take your interiors to the next level and attract your dream customers or clients so you can make your creative dreams finally possible. This is for you if you're an interior designer or photographer, have an Airbnb, a homeware shop or e-commerce business, and you want your interiors to look like the ones you see in your favorite books, magazines or Instagram accounts. Come learn how to style using my signature method so you can elevate any interior and create compelling imagery, which is your most effective marketing tool if you're selling a product or service in the world of interiors. Any successful business owner knows that styling is your secret weapon to cut through the visual noise, stand out from the crowd and grow your business. Styling is something that you don't want to leave to chance. In today's world, images are everything. This is why leading interior designers and architects always use stylists to finesse their spaces for photography to make sure they've got incredible imagery that they can use for their socials and website. Come learn how to make styling not only an essential element, an easy way to create content for your socials and websites, but learn how it can propel the growth of your creative business. If you're serious about creating beautiful interiors and a business you love without struggling in obscurity, this is the program for you. I'm going to share my process and give insights that you're not going to get anywhere else because I've been working as a professional interior stylist for the past 15 years. The Styling Masterclass will give you that clarity and confidence you need to take action and connect with your dream customer or client so you can make your creative dreams possible. Go to nataliewalton.com forward slash next level to learn more and enroll now. Enrollments are open for only a short time. So please, if you're interested and you're ready to take your interiors to the next level, go to nataliewalton.com forward slash next level. Welcome to Imprint, a podcast about creating a home and life you love I'm Natalie Walton, an interior designer, stylist, and best-selling author focused on an holistic approach to homes. Each week, I'm sharing insights and interviews about the creative process to help you enhance both your interiors and well-being, as well as provide you with the tools and resources to make considered and sustainable choices with all that you create. Hello everyone, I hope you're all well. I'm very excited to share today's interview with you. It is with Simone Haag, who is a director and designer of her own interior design business. And she has gone on such a fascinating journey, not what you would expect at all to get where she is today. She did an apprenticeship of sorts with Hecaduck Guthrie in Melbourne, but have really carved her own path since then and is known for her unique style. She really owns sort of using vintage pieces in dynamic ways in interiors. 
and has had her work featured all around the world and had various design nominations as well. So she shares also really openly about her process of how she works with clients, how she charges for her services, and how she has managed to grow a team and a thriving and successful business. I personally got so much out of this interview, and I think that you will too. So if you do enjoy it, I would love if you could take a quick second to quickly rate and review this podcast. Just put a quick comment in. It'll just take, you know, 10 seconds to say, love the interview with Simone so I can know that you enjoyed it and bring you more of the interviews and the content that you really enjoy. Thank you so much and enjoy my conversation with Simone Hard. Hello, Simone. I am so excited to sit down and have a chat with you about all things interiors, your journey, and some of the biggest lessons that you've learned over the years, because I think, um, you know, what you have achieved in the world of interiors is amazing. And I love the story of, you know, that you have perhaps not taken a traditional route to get where you are, but I always like to start these conversations by going back to the beginning and getting a little bit of an insight into who you are through your childhood and some of the things that you were interested in. Could you see any indication sort of like in those childhood years that you would be where you are today? Well, firstly, Natalie, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. I'm a I'm an avid fan of your of your books and your aesthetics. So very very pleased to be here today. And um, to the listeners, I've just wanted to share a little minute that I'm sitting here in a house that we've just moved into uh, in Melbourne, um, a beautiful mid century house. I've just taken Natalie for a very quick FaceTime tour as I walk through to the lounge. And um, yeah, it's an amazing spot to be sitting here thinking about about design and talking about design because I'm pretty excited about what's to come. But first of all, yes, we will talk. We can, we we'll go back a few steps to childhood um I yes I don't have I didn't grow up in a family where design was um at the forefront and certainly my, my parents weren't overly creative my mum was a flight attendant and my dad was a policeman <laughs> so I don't think you can probably get more um non-creative than than that um so I would say um and I think at the time growing up I didn't even think interior design could be uh, a vocation I, I studied business um as I um have mentioned in the odd podcast here and there with um a specialization in kind of in travel and um and that kind of thing so no no design um inspiration in my family or no no leveraging off of their creative um <laughs> creative ways uh but I did always like um I found some old books when I was moving house Natalie of when I'd been on my travels and this would be when I was in my I guess you know 18 19 20 where I used to collect snippets of interiors and do little sketches so I would say it's always been something that it's, uh, has interested me but I think it took a long time to realise that it could actually be a career. So then take us, how did it all happen for you? I mean, obviously you're a very successful stylist and designer, um, you know, after studying business. Where, how did you end up sort of working in the world of interiors? 
Uh, it's it was it's a it's a fun story. It depends how much time you've got. But in terms of the in terms of the abridged version, um, so I studied business and um, I did some. Uh, my university La Trobe had a campus at Mount Buller, so of course I opted for the the last couple of um, the, or the last semester or two being at Mount Buller, where I met um, met someone who his father had a heliboarding operation. So heliboarding is a very high-end helicopter skiing, snowboarding experience. And next thing I've landed a job in Canada working in this heliboarding operation. Um, and from there, went back through London, um, started off in pubs and then landed a role in an Ian Traeger um, boutique hotel designed by Philippe Stark. And um, so I guess one, one job has led to the next and to the next. And, and whilst working in this hotel, that was where I think that whole being immersed in design and surrounded by it, like you'd walk through an Ian Traeger hotel. And this is when boutique hotels were quite the rage. I think now it's 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 kind of a given. We wouldn't go to a hotel unless it was a boutique hotel. But I guess going back then it was it was the exception, not the rule. Um, so in this role here, I started off in a reservations capacity, which <laughs> saw me underground with a headphone on, uh, pretty much for eight hours a day. And knowing London, it's dark at you know any uh, and during your work day, you know it's dark in the morning, it's dark in the evening. I don't think I saw daylight for about three months, and um, I pretty much decided, look, that's not me. I'm, I'm I'm more front of house, and I navigated my role into an events capacity, um, and being a really sexy boutique hotel the events were of the Hollywood, you know, like megastars. There was Elton John's and Kevin Spacey's party and, you know, I'd, I'd be in a lift talking to someone and when they left the lift and the, and the lift door shut, they'd say, oh, did you realise that that was Sting? And I was like, oh, I had no idea what Sting looked like. Um, so it was, a, it was an incredible experience in this hotel um, and then I met um, the CEO of the surfing company Quicksilver. They said, oh, we've got this boat touring the world promoting Quicksilver. It was you know, we'd love an Aussie, you know, the token Aussie hostess to come tour the States with us on this tour. So then next thing I'm, I'm on this boat with Quicksilver for two years, you know, literally going up and down the east and west coast of the States and through, you know, the through the Great Lakes and even down the Mississippi in this boat for Quicksilver. Um, I've popped home met a girl who was an actress and a flight attendant on private jets who said, oh, I've, I need someone to help me, um, help me on my, on the jets. Can you take over? So the next thing I'm working on private jets. Um, so yeah, there was helicopters, jets, sexy hotels. Um, snow, there was some snowboarding in between. So definitely some incredible jobs. And then when I came home, I, I just wanted to work in a creative space and I, in my mind I had sort of graphic design agency or um, advertising agency. I, I knew that I wasn't really qualified to be perhaps, um, you know, an account manager but I thought could I be a coordinator or a, an assistant or an EA? I just wanted to be able to wear Converse cons and be, you know, working in Paran, you know, having coffees and that was my, that was the next kind of thing for me. And um, so Hecker Guthrie is obviously an incredible interior design studio who were HP and G at the time. And I approached them and I said to them, I'm, 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 I don't have a desire to be a designer, but I do have a desire to be in a creative space. I've got PR experience. I've got event experience. I've got life experience. Um, so next thing I've sort of just worked my way up um, in their studio being a, uh, 
in an assistant capacity and then I think that just grew and grew and grew into having more um, design tasks landing on my plate or actually probably as a case maybe I started to chase those design tasks a little bit more and I was like, oh, can I help find this or I saw this or I found that. Um, and that enthusiasm really saw me um, navigate into the furniture art object um, space within their organisation, uh, which is obviously it's it's funny because, you know, you can study interior design or architecture, yet picking a couch or a curtain can make, you know, even the most accomplished uh, architect or designer freeze, whereas I found that to me my that was my in or that was my ability to be able to do those things because they were low risk and they were low, you know, if you got, if you got it wrong when you were presenting some fabrics, it wasn't like a house was going to fall down around someone, you know, you just went back to the drawing board. So it was a very nice way of getting into the industry in a way where I found it, there was tangible things to touch and feel versus, um, you know, doing some documentation that might take two or three years to be realised. So that was a really great apprenticeship from there. Yeah, I forgot actually that you um, you worked at, with Hecker Guthrie. And, um, but what I'm curious about just listening to this story, and I have sort of heard, you know, little snippets of it in the past as well, is just your... I guess your attitude, you know, like your belief in yourself that like, I'll work it out. I'll figure this out. I can do this. Where do you think that comes from? Because I think that shows up in the way that you approach your interiors as well. And the way that you approach your career, like you really have this sort of positive kind of can do attitude. Is that something mm. that you've had to cultivate or has it always been within you? I think I've always had, uh, with, um, there used to be a saying that one of the practice managers said at Hecker Guthrie was win the work and worry about it later. And I think that's a kind of a good way of putting it that I would, um, I, I've always, well, there's kookaburras. I don't know if you can hear the kookaburras in my new house. Can you hear them? Anyway, sorry, I digress. <laughs> no, <not> the <laughs> oh, it's okay. really lovely and bushy here. I wish I could take everyone on a tour. Um, don't worry, it'll be happening soon. You have to shoot it soon, Natalie. Um, yeah. So the, um, yes, definitely get in and then just figure it out has been my mentality and um, or a sense of modesty. Okay, I've, I've never wanted to purport to be able to do more than what I can do and even that happens when um, new clients say, I would love you to do the kitchens and the bathrooms and I'll say to them, "You, there are so many fabulous interior designers that I can dovetail with but here's my specialisation and this is what I really love doing. Um, I'd rather do what I do really well than spread myself thin and try and, um, you know, purport to be an expert. And so I, I really am trying to recognise with myself that having a specialization in that furniture space and not really being able to do the bigger picture of I'm reconciling that, that, that that's okay and I, and, I, and I need to just know that, that that it's a good thing and then it's a, an asset um, to my clients not not a liability that um, my skill set is quite um, limited but I guess going back to your question I would say enthusiasm is in spades and um, I recently did a talk um, for a, a nomination for Interior Designer of the Year, which is um, very exciting. And some clients did some testimonials for me, some little visual, um, audio bites, and one of them said that the, one of my biggest assets was my enthusiasm and how it was infectious. And so I feel like that um, that I'm excited about design. Clients have brought me on because either they're excited about it or, or, or scared by it, but either way there, there's that inf that kind of being infectious in, in my enthusiasm seems to rub off 99% of the time. Um, does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, no, 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 it's great. I mean, because I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with is that they might love interiors or they like the idea of creating spaces, but 
the thing that they really lack is the confidence or the belief in themselves that they'll find a way to work it out. And I'm just curious, you know, as I said, that, you know, how you fostered that within yourself or the approach that you take or any kind of little sayings you have, as you mentioned, like, you know, the sort of we'll work it out kind of approach, you Mm -hmm. know, that you kind of mentally go through in your, your own mind to sort of perhaps give other people, you know, tools or ways of thinking that, um, you know, can help other people who perhaps lack that confidence. What, what I, I think I've definitely learned to um, lean on intuition and um, if there's a little red flag that keeps niggling, like sometimes I'll make a selection with the team and then I'll go away and I'll lie in bed and it'll, and it'll just niggle in my mind and I'll come back to them next day and say, you know what, I've changed my mind. And you can just see them, you know, you can see the um, them sort of rolling their eyes and going, oh, no, but you, you have to listen to that intuition. Um, when I put fabrics, um, do we do a flat lay. It's funny because sometimes suppliers will come in with fabrics from particular ranges and we'll have our palette generally laid out all over the floor um, and everyone's sort of tiptoeing to get to the kitchenette to make a cup of tea because there's, you know, big um, blocks of, of fabrics on the floor. And um, the suppliers will come in and, uh, and we can be very decisive and sometimes they, they go, oh, my gosh, can't believe you just looked at that and then all of a sudden you, you'd pick that within a minute. Um, so I would say the intuition that I feel I'm definitely, I listen to it and I act on it really quickly. And, but it's funny because I was trying to pick uh, fabrics for my kids' beds here and I was oscillating back and forth. It took me about six weeks to pick three bed fabrics, whereas I could do a whole house in, in a couple of hours with the with all the finishes. So I think for, for clients um, it's definitely easier than for myself. But I would say um, that intuition and um, that knowing is something that I've really developed and I'm really proud of because there was a time when I was doing my, you know, quote unquote apprenticeship where I would too be nervous to present a fabric and I'd always sort of default to the the same old, you know, Belgian linen in a chunky, you know, and, and now there's this clashing of fabrics that it's, it's so easy now. And I, I'm, I'm really proud that it's gone from a point of, you know, presenting linen, linen or linen to um, the ability to, to sort of put it together and just know that it's going to be right. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of how that's developed and I'm not entirely sure how it's happened. Um, I mean, there's been mistakes along the way, of, of course, um, but not so many. Like it's it's so – I'm not sure. I, I wish I could say that there was a recipe to it, but, um, yeah, it's um, – I'm really proud that, that I can yeah. now put – now, walk into a fabric house, pull a bunch of stuff that no one else probably would have put together in a certain combination and, um, yeah. It's funny, can I, I'm, I digress slightly, but we've started to incorporate um, palette play sessions with our clients because often we had these briefs from clients where they might say, oh, I'd like to have, you know, I love green. So we'd go and put together a presentation with lots of, say, sage colours or whatnot. And they said, oh, no, I really like olive. And it's come to light that how a client might describe a colour or a tone or a feeling can be very subjective. And um, so now as part of our process, we have incorporated what's called a palette play day. That's a mouthful. Um, (laughs) And what we do is we literally go to um, some of our trusted fabric showrooms and you can see the clients are like, you know, bunny in the headlights to begin with because they sort of like don't know where to start. And we start pulling these fabrics and we start pulling them together by room. And then next thing you can see these clients, all of a sudden they're like, oh, I quite like that one. It's great. Let's throw it in. All right, that's good, but that means we can't use that. All right, that one goes back. And then an hour and a half, two hours later, 
we literally have a, pa- a palette established per room and the client has this buy-in and all of a sudden they feel like they've been part of it. Whereas two hours earlier they were looking, <laughs> they didn't know where to start. And it's, it's happened a couple of times now and it's, um, it's a really great process. So anyone that's in the design space that's trying to either establish a palette or perhaps guide a client, I recommend it. Except there was one time when a client's husband came and he was being part, he was part of the session. And at the end he said, well, I love it, but I'm actually colorblind. So I'm not quite sure <laughs> what I'm looking at, but I'm sure it's great. oh my gosh that's so funny the client's colorblind maybe um anyway may not may not work so well but so palette play sessions yeah I feel like that's the start of any good project um so let's then go back to so obviously you were doing this sort of an apprenticeship of sorts with with Hecker Guthrie which is um you know a very respected interior design firm um based in Melbourne and and what happened next? You know, what were your next steps on your journey to sort of becoming, um, you know, taking on your own clients? Mm-hmm. Look, I, I think I had uh, my eldest daughter, Goldie, and she's now eight and a half. And I guess the world's changed a lot. You know, working from home has been embraced in a way that we would never have been able to ever imagine. And I think eight and a half years ago, there probably wasn't that ability to be able to chime into a meeting online or, um, and I just, uh, because I, what I do, I want to do as best as I can. I just was really worried actually that I would go back and not be able to be that enthusiastic gung-ho take it all on throw it at me I'll figure it out kind of person I just and I just didn't want to go from being the best version that I felt I could be to being a bit of a um, second rate oh I'm trying but I've got to run to pick up or I've got a sick kid and I don't know I felt like I you know it's like if you, you do a really good job of something and I just I felt like I I was never going to be able to return back to that and maybe that's maybe that was just me being perfectionistic and I you know I could have gone and trialed it and given it an opportunity to see how motherhood and working for an organization um, played out so I think I just that was my motivation I think just not wanting to disappoint um, and I mean anyone that knows it started a business or having kids you think it's going to give you flexibility you think it's going to give you all of these freedoms it's quite the opposite um, because there's no off switch with your own business but um, the great thing is I've got a really fabulous relationship with Hecker Guthrie actually Paul and I were chatting on the phone about three minutes before I jumped on here and we're talking about how we're gonna we want to do a tour together to Mexico City and we're collaborating on some projects or the client came to me but the scope was too broad for my my skill set so I've popped them back in the direction of Hecker Guthrie and then they're now invited me back in for the furniture so you know it's taken seven or eight years um of you know going our own ways to then circle back together so I think it's a really lovely um it's because they are they're very special friends and mentors of mine and to be able to be invited back onto projects and work together and share clients is exactly where you want to be with you know with with a company like that so yeah Paul's going to come on Saturday and check out the new house and yeah I'm, I'm really excited and I think it I needed to go off and sort of find my own um, aesthetic, which I think has is quite different to Hecker Guthrie's because they they you know they absolutely kill it in that they've got a beautiful aesthetic, but it's 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 quite a you look at a job and you you can see the detailing, you know what's one of theirs. Where I think mine's a bit more schizophrenic <laughs> still, um, but I feel like either way, I had to sort of just find my own path for a while. So did you go then? So you said you know you had your daughter. So then did you? Mm-hmm. 
take any time off or like were you trying to find (laughs) clients or what you know like what did you yeah what was your process I know that we were in contact you were doing freelance work with real living at some point I don't know where that fits into the story Yes. That, so I think when I uh, when I had um, Goldie, I really was taking on clients, you know, either family, friends or my husband's a builder. Um, so he was building homes for clients and that was a, a bit of a shoe in for some work. Um, just friends of friends, um, friends of past clients um, that maybe had smaller jobs that perhaps weren't, you know, at the HG level or budget. But so I think just organically um, the word spread that um, and I didn't know whether having just this furniture specialisation was going to be enough to sustain me. But the more and more that I've done it, I've realised that there's some clients that might use an architect but then haven't got a stylist or decorator. Um, there's clients that haven't needed an architect or a designer because they're in a, in a house that's already done. They just need the furniture. So it's actually worked out to be a specialisation that seems to have quite, um, you know, seems to be quite relevant. Um, so the business I think I, you know, got a pretty simple logo from a, um, a a junior graphic designer that I met along the way, and you know, I even went shopping to Office Works and bought like receipt books, <laughs> you know, those carbonized receipt <laughs> books, and uh, and I, you know, I sort of thought I'm going to run a business, and then of of course, as you go through the process, you then get a um, get your branding done and your website, but you can't really afford the incredible website, so you have you know the very simple. Um, uh, it wasn't even Squarespace, but was it, you know, you know, kind of those build your own kind of a website. So it's all pretty ad hoc to begin with. Um, but the projects kept coming and I think the, the, the budgets got higher and then the, 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 the furniture that I've been able to put in has become more, um, more interesting and then therefore the projects are more desirable and then the kind of the, the it just sort of snowballs from there. But, yeah, I pretty much started when Goldie was six or eight weeks um, because at that stage, you know, kids just sleep all day. So you're like, oh, this is amazing. I could have a baby and I could do a bit. Of, and then, of course, they wake up and you're like, and you're already, you know, knee deep in it. And then I haven't, <laughs> I haven't stopped. But the kids are great and they, um, I think they're really um, interested in design. I, I feel like to some degree they might follow the path, um, they're always asking about it or looking at magazines or telling me what they like and don't like and um, they're interested in the clients. And so, I, you know, I haven't done any major damage <laughs> by just getting straight into it. So that's good. So what about your your style journey? I'm sort of curious to learn, you know, I mean, as you said, you were sort of um, specifying things when you were working at Hecker Guthrie and, you know, that's quite a departure from where you are now in terms of the types of interiors that you create and you know the the materials and the the sort of the patterns Mm -hmm. and all of the things that you bring to a space um can you share a little bit about how your style has evolved over the years and and what you think some of the big influences have been on it I think there was sort of generally that d- default to that Scandinavian style uh, when I was at HG or, um, you know, in that sort of um, period immediately after. And I'm just trying to think when the shift happened and it was quite subtle. Um, but it probably was me trying to establish a, a, a different look because I certainly didn't probably want to feel like I had then stepped out of an organisation and taken 
their IP or their their look with me. So I think it was almost like, okay, I've got to really change this up or this isn't going to look too good. So I think it was probably, um, and then, oh, look, I, don't, I really don't, I couldn't tell you. It was such a subtle shift. Um, it was a really subtle shift. Uh, I think it's probably the biggest thing, Natalie, would be um, bringing in things directly from overseas that perhaps aren't um, represented here is where I think it started to probably make some make some impact. And um, it is easy to to see things in showrooms and specify them and then other people specify them and they get loaned for shoots and they get seen a lot. And um, so I think when I started to bring in things directly from overseas that weren't represented, not that I don't support the showrooms, I do very much, but I probably just try and avoid selecting pieces that are on display or can be easily um, selected. So if we're choosing a, a sofa from Space Furniture, we would then put, put our own fabric on it so that it, it always has a sense of being unique. Um, I try very hard to not roll out the same pieces on multiple projects. And sometimes clients say, please, I love the stool that you use there. Um, but I really try not to repeat things and if I have to repeat them at the client's request then I'll make sure that I change the fabric significantly I just want every client to feel like what's been selected for them has been selected just for them <laughs> so it means we've just got to keep looking further and further afield um for things which of course was very hard in COVID during COVID um so I, I, I feel like the style now, again, in his talk that I did last week for um, the Interior Designer of the Year nomination, I, I showed some examples of some work and I was coining various styles um, and I sort of said this is moody, this is city, this is earthy, this is tribal, this is minimalist, this is maximum. And then as I went through I realised that there were quite a lot of different styles um, so oh, look, I'm not really answering your question very well. No, 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 no. I, I, I think, <laughs> yeah, I think that one one thing that distinguishes what you do is is your eye for collecting and your eye for unique pieces, which is, I guess, what you're sort of saying with your clients is that you don't want things to feel um, generic. You know that you don't want it to be repeated, the look or the you know the the elements and. I um correct me if I'm wrong, but you've sort of over the years, and obviously this was I think you started this well before COVID. You used to do like tours to LA to go like vintage shopping. Have you always been a collector? And can you sort of share a little bit of a light on what you like about it and um and maybe even some tips, like what you know, what's <laughs> some good ways to find some, you know, interesting or unique pieces to put in your space? Mm-hmm. So, yes, yeah, so we did do a tour to LA. Um, the first one was uh, we finished the tour about a month before all the lockdowns commenced. So the timing was brilliant. Um, and then I did collect a lot of pieces from from there, which I had sent home and probably was naive. Didn't I was a bit naive as to the costs of shipping things home. And I know that the, sh- the cost of shipping things home far outweigh <laughs> the cost of the goods that I was shipping home. So I learned a few lessons there. Um, but I would say I've always loved... Um, to collect things and I think in my early design days it was more going to op shops and getting couches and and cabinets and sanding them back and then I look back now and I know that when I when I started at HG and I showed Paul a couch that I'd got from an op shop and had recovered he turned his nose up 
at it. Um, and I was like, oh, I've really got and cocked this one up, haven't I? Go, and he said yes. And I was like, oh, my God, I was just, do you know how expensive that fabric was? So, yeah, I learned a few lessons the hard way. Um, and so now I don't get thing, too many things from op shops. But um, I, I, I often buy – so if I see things from collectors or, or – um, vintage resellers I'll often buy them even if I don't have a house uh, a client for them so then I do start to I guess almost warehouse some of these pieces and keep them unupholstered until the right project pops up um I am going back to LA again in a month with with now 20 ladies or I think it's 19 ladies and one gentleman and we will go to the flea markets and things but I'll I'll have to be a little bit more clipped about how (laughs) what I get and how I send it home and it might need to be just take an extra suitcase this time um so the vintage pieces definitely add I I would say that's a huge part of the signature style out of the studio um we never put too many in a project it's probably a bit of a you know a one-third vintage two-thirds not rule and um I try not to get pieces that are too obvious to the style of the house so if it was a, a a period home I probably wouldn't get period furniture. I'd have more of a 60s piece or so I, I don't think you need to necessarily have the piece of furniture that aligns with the period of the home. I think that's if you flip it on its head, that's when it starts to be successful. Um, and and be having a lot of fun with fabrics on those pieces. And, of course, the lead time of those pieces is incredible because they're generally obviously found and in stock or short lead time or short shipping time. So they really do help bring a project together. Uh, but also you don't want to have too many of them that then all of a sudden you feel like you're in a, in a time warp. <laughs> so it's a fine balance, but I would say looking, looking out for things and when you see them, you really just have to nab them because if you don't, they'll be gone and you'll be annoyed with yourself. Um, and knowing that, um, knowing some of the provenance of the pieces or knowing that, um, that maybe the cost of actually fixing them or repairing them or recovering them may outweigh the cost of the, of the, of, of the item to begin with so but yeah, I mean I bought a desk from an auction recently for $700 and it's going to cost me two and a half grand to get it looking perfect but in my mind I go well even then you know could you walk into a shop and spend three three and a half grand on a desk well, absolutely you could so sometimes you just have to weigh up the overall cost not try and think about it in terms of the purchase price versus the repair so hopefully those, so when there's you some go tips on these, might- yeah yeah. So when you go on these sourcing trips, do you go, you, you don't like say the one just before the lockdown. So you didn't necessarily have clients in mind. You were just kind of going to see what you could find or do you try and kind of go with specific projects in mind? It's funny. Well, um, I was in Paris and Milan recently for the furniture fair this year and there was a couple of jobs that had just started. So it was really amazing because I actually went around and it wasn't necessarily it wasn't necessarily just vintage pieces, but I was looking for pieces for this job. And thankfully, many of the pieces that we sourced have now made its way into the job. And I said to the client, wow, the timing of this trip could not have been better because it was so great to walk around and go, oh, that would be amazing for this job. And that would be amazing for this job. But you have to have a client that is trusting to, to say yes to the pieces that you've seen but they haven't. Um, there were some vintage pieces I did see for another project where I said, this would be so good for you, but the cost of shipping those individually was a bit too much. And then I said, oh, maybe we should wait and buy it and when we can buy some more pieces and consolidate the, the shipment. But by the time you do that, the piece that you originally liked is already sold. So it really is you have to act fast and just cross your fingers and say, don't worry, we'll, we'll get it here and we'll 
we'll get it here as cheaply as we can. So I think it all depends on the confidence and the budget of the client as to how successful those trips can be. But certainly one of the instances in one of the instances, so many of the things that we found have now been specified. And people that we met at galleries, we go away, we send a request and it gets approved. They take you seriously, you know. Then next time we email them, we're not just some small designer from Australia. Like, they, you know, we've met you, you've come to Paris, you've specified from us, and you, yeah, you that kind of credibility builds. And even just walking into some places in Paris where we introduced ourselves, Melissa and I were there, my colleague Melissa and I, and we gave them a business card and they said, "Oh, we follow you, we know your work," and that just blew us away to go. Oh my gosh, we're walking into, you know, Coco's Gallery in Paris, and they know they know of our work like that. Just yeah. It was mind-boggling, incredible. Yeah, um, I can hear the buzz now. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but yeah. Um, so, how do you? How have you managed to get the sort of clients that are willing to pay the money to get the great pieces? Because I think you know this is something that a lot of people struggle with. Is that you know it, it, it's uh, yeah. I'd be kind of interested to hear your take on that because obviously. You know, we can all see, you know, these amazing things out there, mm. but not everyone has pockets that are deep enough to kind of go and buy these pieces. How has that come about for you that you've been able to sort of get these types of clients? Look, I, I feel I owe all of that to my early apprenticeship days at HG where all of a sudden I was moving in a circle that was at that um, pointy end, if you will. Um, and then so that already then I guess the clients that came in sort of after I left then friends of their friends of theirs or however it sort of evolved I was already moving in that circle where um where people did have budget for furniture or certainly you know this was not their first rodeo they'd done multiple houses um and they knew that um they knew they know what furniture costs the the, the trickiest part for me is a client comes in with a furniture budget that I know is not going to get them a result that is commensurate with what they're seeing on the website. And now, and I used to be very much, oh, that's okay. We'll make it work. We'll, we'll get the posh pov to figure it out. Um, and through the last year of working with a business coach, we've really, I've become better at coaching clients and saying that budget is fabulous and we can have some fun with it, but it's not going to get you, it's not going to get you the level of detail that you're seeing. Um, because I was always very much, you know, that again, that enthusiasm, we'll make it work, we'll figure it out. And then slowly but surely it, it comes a bit unstuck when you can't because things cost money. And um, so, you know, we have a client at the moment who had a firm budget and I was really uh, up with her and said, your house is probably going to feel about 40% full at the end of the, this spend. And then maybe once you're in, we can then embark on sort of a stage two and a stage three and then but then how do you not disappoint them because you also want to wow them with a concept with pieces that it's going to get them excited. So it's just you're like saying, here we go, here's what you could get but here's what you can afford. So I don't think I've got the answers yet but I think those those upfront conversations or doing a budget room by room with a mid-range and a high range definitely shows clients that if they want to spend 150 on their furniture for their entire house, then a bedside table can only be 400 and a lamp can only be 120 and a dining table can only be five and that's still a lot of money. So, But that's not going to get them the look that they've seen on a website where you know, the budget was four times that. So yeah, I think it's all of that communication. And um, even now in my capability document, we've color coded 
projects within the range of their spend so that clients can say, okay, this project here is in this range or this project here is in that range. So that, that's probably where I'm at at the moment is just trying to get that communication and um, better, you know, be better placed to manage expectations, which is what it's all about really. Yeah, no, that's really great um, insights. I think, you know, a lot of people who listen to this podcast are, you know, in the interiors world, sort of starting out as interior designers or stylists. And um, something else that people sort of struggle a lot with is knowing how to charge for your services. So it's one thing to sort of, you know, find the client who's willing to pay for, you know, for a particular um, or has a particular budget for, you know, the product, you know, the, the furniture but also actually sort of charging for your services. How has your journey evolved with that over the years? It's it's a great question. I think at the start when I was had had Goldie as a baby and I was helping out friends and family, I didn't charge a fee, but I just retained the difference between trade and retail. So that actually was quite a good way of, for me starting out because I felt like it was low risk. The client with a client, quote unquote client or auntie or friend or whoever essentially didn't pay a design fee they and and if they were going to go choose something themselves they would have paid retail anyway so by retaining the difference between the retail and the trade became my payment and I never felt like I was ever going to let anyone down because they were the the net kind of the net position that they were in would have been no different if they were doing it themselves so that was a really good way to start out because I felt like I wasn't um charging them. And then I started to realize that actually that difference between trade and retail was a significant portion. Um, and that in conjunction with a design fee was actually a, quite a, a good way of charging. So now I do a percentage of spend model and um, as, as the design fee, because the way that I see it, there's the design work and then there's the implementation and they're both very significant parts of the, of the process. So obviously the design is that getting to know the client, briefing, um, getting all the finishes, getting the CAD plans or if there isn't plans, getting CAD plans, getting the house measured up to get drawn up. There's um, the concept work, the design development, there's the scheduling, there's um, back and forth with work, you know, value management and that's all the design work but then that's only part of the process. Then there's like the whole invoicing, um, checking all the orders, um, tracking them, storing them, getting them delivered, um, art visits, um, styling sessions, uh, being available for any gaps that need filling for, you know, three months after bumping, um, claims and warranty uh, sort of following up. So essentially there's sort of two parts of the process. So we charge a percentage of spend um, as for that design component and then we retain an element of the trade discount which basically pays for the um, – project management and essentially what percentage we charge is a bit of a sliding scale so if a client has a larger spend uh, it's a smaller percentage and if a client has a smaller spend it's a larger percentage because it's a bit like selling a house whether you sell a one-bedroom unit or a 10-bedroom mansion you still have to meet the client take the photos um, go to the open for inspection so really whether you spent the client whether it's a large house or a small house, the journey is much the same. So that's why we have that sliding scale. And it also means that clients go, okay, you know what, I, I'm saying to Simone I'm going to spend 200 grand, but I've really got 300 up my sleeve. Well, they're actually better off declaring that up front because then their percent, their fee will be possibly in the next bracket, which makes it a bit cheaper, which means if they were going to spend that money anyway, it's much better I know about it 
earlier because then I'm not redesigning because otherwise I would have gone and budgeted for the 200, presented them a scheme. <laughs> they would have said, oh, it's not special enough. Here's another 100 and I'm going to have to go and redo the whole job anyway. So the way that that model does, it kind of extracts well, kind of basically pushes, pushes is a bad word, but it sends clients to their pointy end. So they declare really what they've got to spend, not just what they're saying they've got to spend because there's no point. You, you, you're better off just knowing what you've got. Otherwise, um, there's just that rework um, piece that has to happen. So that's how ours works. And we often have um, difficult, not difficulties, but clients do feel uh, um, they are deserving of the entire trade discount. Um, but after the process has um, ensued and they realise, and we're very transparent how we do pass on a portion and retain a portion, by the end they say, oh, my gosh, I had no idea how much coordination was in the ordering and um, they actually do feel that we are very deserving of that, of whatever we retained. Um, and the odd time where with a client has where the negotiations have landed, where the client does get full trade and then do their own ordering, it's a, often a bit of a disaster. They forget to order things. If things are out of stock, then they've got to, they don't order them in time. They haven't got them. Then we've got to respecify. Um, if the client gets that full trade, then they don't have us for that claims and warranty process. And then if things are wrong, then we have to say, look, I'm sorry, but you opted for this model. Therefore, that doesn't sit with us to, to rectify this. But then that we feel bad, so then we do it anyway. So I really feel like it's it's for clients understanding that whilst, yes, it would be amazing to tap into a trade discount and everyone wants a discount, by us retaining our portion of it, whatever that might be, depending on their spend, we actually, it, it provides a service. And if you're wanting a service and you're wanting someone to take care of business for you because you're running your own business or you're busy, then allow us to do it, but allow us to charge accordingly. So yeah, it's, it's you know, you learn the hard way, but there's, yeah, there's, and there's some clients that have opted to do their own orders and have that full trade. And you really have to say to them, you you selected this option. We recommend it against it. There's implications with that. You have to understand that, you know, that it's like if you opt for, a, you know, a Happy Meal at McDonald's, you don't expect to get the, you know, the Big Mac that comes with it. And, and I think it's it, there's that bracket creep that can happen that as a creative and I would say a kind person, you, you find it hard to then push back. But um, I'm getting better at, at trying to get those boundaries set up front then um, have to have the conversations down the track so yeah, yeah I mean that's so so helpful and so insightful because I think that you know valuing your time is something that is you know can be really challenging when you've got your own business and you want to create the best work that you can but at the same time like you know you can't work for free like well, I mean you know, might do a little bit of that when you're starting out but there comes a point where like you've got your own bills to pay and and mm. particularly if you've got a team that you're growing mm. and you know you need to pay wages and rent if you've got office space or whatever it is mm. so it's um yeah it's it's a really um it can be a really tricky one to navigate and sort of feeling that you you are actually valuing your time and, and communicating that with the client as you say I think that is a really important component of it um as you just going to mention that so with the, I'll, I'll definitely talk about the team in a minute but we've just put on an, um, a new team member who's in that client services logistics space and I think definitely one of the things I want her to help um with the business is 
um, letting clients, reminding them their obligations as well. So, okay, we're, you know, we're three, we're two months out from the bump in, we're going to need, you know, in the next month, we're going to need to invoice you for a portion of your furniture fee, furniture fee and, and furniture, um, invoice make sure you're, you're ready for that it's going to be coming in in the next sort of four weeks or or it might be okay now we're heading into our bump in um just a reminder that we've you know you've got the team for an extra 12 weeks after the bump in for that kind of gap filling process um you know let's get on to that one because once that 12 weeks is up we might then have to kind of go back into hourly rate land so you know having someone other than yourself give the client these little kind of prompts along the way because sometimes the tricky thing is is client a uh, project finishes um, and at what point do you draw the line in the sand and say, okay, I'm I'm no longer um, able to do this um, at um, at you know on request. It, it, this is now a new parcel of work, or this is now enough times lapsed that we're now going to enter into a new um, engagement. So I think, but you can't just do that reactively. You have to be proactive about that. So that's what having someone on board helping me guide the clients because I'm there in design land and I don't I can't always think. Um, how to, of communicating those across, you know, 10 or 12 jobs. So that's really a really exciting um, direction that the business is taking, having someone just dedicated to that to that space. Um, I've got two design leads um, at the moment uh, who's Melissa and Cindy uh, and they're fabulous. We work really well together. It's a very flat hierarchy um, and clients often ask, are you going to be my main contact or are they going to be my main contact or are you going to be involved and, um so what we're it's it's funny because originally I used to be quite apologetic and I used to say to clients, look, I'm really sorry, I'm across everything, but I'm just not going to be the one emailing you because um, you know I, I if you were waiting for me to email you, you'd be waiting longer than by having my team assist. Um, and it's funny, my business coach pulled me up on it and he said, you don't want to apologize for that. You want to celebrate the fact that you've got a team supporting you. So you can be doing the things that you want and not be there sort of having to, you know, um, um, input data into schedules and, and email them off and, and things like that. So I've learned to not be apologetic that I'm not the one and only, but actually celebrate the fact that I've got a team helping, um, produce, um, produce an outcome. And as soon as the clients start to get to know the design leads, they realize that their aesthetic is, is equal, equal, in strength and that their their input is valuable and the more input they have into the jobs the more they feel accountable and and interested and that's all and why wouldn't you want to have extra brains out there looking for beautiful pieces so that's great um we've got a um, design a visualization artist um and design assistant and business coach and um uh financial controller who's a i guess you know bookkeeper and 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 money <laughs> money lady um so the team is it works well the visualization artist um ellie that's been a really great um part of the business because she helps realize like we, we can put pictures on a page and a palette on a table but her ability to turn that into a into a 3d actually just sell essentially sells the idea to the client it, it far quicker than we ever could just by, you know, pushing pictures around on a, on a um, PowerPoint presentation. So that is actually, and I, th- I would encourage any designer who's starting out to buddy up with like a, um, a recent design graduate who might be really good at CAD and, and 3D because it actually also helps us go, Christ, we didn't realise that there was a wall there. We thought that was a window. Oh, we better think about art for there. So sometimes when you look at things on plan, you're only seeing part of the picture and as soon as you get that into that 3D view, you realise 
that you know we might have neglected to 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 uh, address a certain area. So it definitely helps the clients and us in equal parts. So yeah, I would say the teams. The team's fabulous. Two of the girls are coming to LA this year and then um, I think that whole travel piece is a really important part of, of the design leads remit, having them get inspired because the work, it's, you know, we work really hard. They work long hours. They're always trying to be available for the clients. It's physical. It's, it's you know, they, they, they really throw their heart and soul into it and I feel very blessed that I found a, a team that feel equally um as enthusiastic about the projects as myself. So pretty amazing to have landed with the crew that I have. Yeah, that's that's so so great to hear. And what about, I mean, you've shined a light a little bit on some of your process, but can you just step it through a little bit, you know, like how, what's often the starting point when you're looking at a space and also, you know, touching on a little bit what we were talking about moments ago, um, when, you know, it, it could almost be endless, the amount of time that you spend looking for things, you know, sourcing things. How do you sort of set limits on your time so that, you know, it's just not like an, an endless piece of string that you just, there's never an end point? Mm, that's a really good question. So in terms of the process, we we are, funny enough, this afternoon, we've got a meeting where we, we my, my business coach has kind of process mapped um, every step of the way, but we, we, you know, I start with engagement, concept, design development, ordering, logistics, um, installation, and then celebration and, and review. And so it's a bit of a, I guess it's a bit of a, a continuous line where we, um, and this, uh, client services team member that I've brought on, I, I really want her to help the clients know, okay, now we're in concept or now we're moving to design development phase or now we're sort of reaching the point of no return where if we're saying yes to pieces, we then can't circle back and change our mind. And, um, you know, we're now in um, ordering logistics. That means now we're going to send our invoice out for the design stage because that's all done. So, yeah, definitely having that help of someone kind of train, um, taking the client through that um, that journey whilst we're out there doing kind of the, the, the design work. Um in terms of concept, we usually allow six to eight weeks for a concept. Um, most clients, by the time they've engaged you, they really want to start to see some work very quickly. So it is tricky to say, I just need a bit of thinking time and research time. So what we do is we do a palette play session. Um, we then put together a concept, which is generally an uncosted concept. So it's it's imagery, it's palette page, it's fabrics, um, and maybe two renders and perhaps a couple of elevations. Um, and I guess really at that point, that's when you know on a scale of one to ten how much how well you've nailed it. And sometimes the clients are very quiet, but they come back and they're like, love it. Sometimes they love it and they come and go, actually, we changed our mind. And then sometimes they go in, think about it and give their feedback and then you're off and running. So it really, it just depends on the client, um, the dynamic with them and, and, their, and their partner or husband or wife and, and who you're dealing with. And are you talking to both partners or just one? And who's the decision maker? And is the decision, is the decision maker the one that you're talking with or are you talking with the non-decision maker who has to then get sign off from the, the, the sorry, that's a hard word to say, sign off from the, the decision maker. So it, there's a lot of that psychology that goes into it. So, but I would say within six to eight weeks, um, any longer than that, and the clients are going to get fidgety. So you, you don't really have, you can't, it, it isn't that endless um, process. So you really have to then just 
put it in front of them and then use that as your platform to then progress and hopefully get some ticks. You might get some crosses, you get some feedback, and then you take that into the design development stage. I'm curious to learn as well about your approach to, um, I guess, that sort of installation day process. You know, you capture your work so beautifully with um, photography, obviously your styling, and you're really good at getting press for your work and sort of getting your name out there. Like you did that event recently with, um, oh gosh, I can't remember the publication, but you had like an event in Melbourne and you invited different people to come along mm. and look at this project, which was, you know, such a, a beautiful and creative idea. What is your approach to getting, you know, publicity for your projects and how has that helped your business? So with the, well, with the bump in, we we find that we don't loan uh, barely anything for shoots. Definitely hang our hat on the fact that we were if the if the house isn't feeling full and gorgeous and filled, we won't shoot it until the client's like, okay, now I'm ready to throw another parcel of um, budget at it, and we layer it up. So we definitely it's funny because sometimes I do bump ins and the builder. It's like, okay, can we shoot it next week? It's like, no, no, like give them some time. So I definitely say like there's a project we're shooting next week that we probably finished 12 months ago. So we don't race the clients down the path of photography. We let it have some time to settle. And I just think that's a, that's probably just even a, um, even just a, out of respect or customer service, like you've done the job. You want to give it time for them to feel like it's theirs before you capture it. I just, um, so we, we definitely don't loan a lot. We just make sure that it's, that how it is is how it is. And I would say 99% of the time, if you walk through any of the projects on the website, they would still have everything in them that's been shot. And I'm very proud of that because it is very easy to bolster a house with loan items and have a beautiful shoot, but the authenticity isn't there. Um, and I understand it has to happen. It's a, it's a business decision and architects um, that perhaps maybe clients haven't gone on the furniture journey. They need to capture their work and they want to capture it beautifully. I, I, I get all of that. But for us, that's not the, that's not the MO. You know, we, we want to make sure that it's, that it's authentic and genuine. Um, so it's funny because I actually wouldn't say I'm a very good shoot stylist. <laughs> so sometimes I, I can fill the place with furniture and then I'm like, oh, blah, blah, blah. and I often say to the photographer, is this okay? <laughs> is this okay? So I think it's, it's, a, it's a skill in itself, um, to actually be a, a shoot stylist. And, um, so I just hope that the, the spaces have enough good stuff in them that, 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 that they, they capture well and they, they seem to, um, and in terms of press, I've recently engaged um, a lovely woman called uh, Natasha Allen, who used to work at Vogue Living, and she works after my, works on my media um, relations. So definitely, she's getting being more proactive in that space. We haven't really been very proactive in the past, just because of capacity, and so that's lovely to have someone who's sort of thinking big picture um, on those, and even just the award submissions, the amount of time and effort that goes into those poor Natasha when award season comes around (laughs) I feel for her but it's been very I've been I've really enjoyed having sort of handballing that that coordination of those things um so we um in terms of of press I uh, again think because of that leveraging off that time at HG I I did know a lot of the press from my role there so that's been quite good I I think it would be very hard for newcomers to be able to um, 
you know, get themselves in in front of in front of the press and, and have that traction. So I definitely um, attribute that to my time um, when I worked for HD and had that that kind of connection with the press. But the Whiskey Room event, um, I'm glad you mentioned that one because that was really great. It was a client who um, we adored her, we adored the space. Um, Design Anthology had published it and the, it had landed a cover. And I thought, you know what, we've gone out of two years of COVID where no one's actually gone and celebrated or had events. <laughs> so I said to the client, can we have a little bit of a launch of the magazine at your house? And she was traveling and I said, we could have a few, you know, can you hear the kookaburras now? Just, can you hear them? Yeah, on the background, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, sorry. Um, so I said to the client, like, hey, maybe just, you know, five or six people um, you know, some some design friends and, and some of the team will have a champagne and we'll celebrate it. And as she was traveling at the time, and then the guest list grew and grew and grew. And you <laughs> think about 20 people. So when she got back from overseas, she said, Okay, send me the send me the list, who's coming? And we counted it. It was like 20. She said, Blimey. And then she said, Oh, well, it'll be fine. And you know, we had the event, and in the end, we were still all sitting around the table at, you know, Four, four or five hours, six bottles of wine after everyone had left um, enjoying the space. And it was so great to, A, have had such a successful relationship with a client that you are there, welcome to host an event and, and welcome to stay and enjoy the space. But then B, to sit and and not be on the periphery in terms of styling and leaving, but sitting on the carpet, putting your glass on the table seeing how it went from day to night when all of a sudden the lamps all turned on because often you're visiting clients during the day and not at night time. It was really satisfying. And I actually kind of think, gee, I wish I could have opened up the guest list to another 20 more people because it would have been an absolute belter of a party. And I reckon I reckon she would have been up for it as well. But um, anyway, we might do it again. But it was it was great. It was it was really nice to stop and celebrate and invite people in. And and I we, t- we had a bit of a Q and A where we talked about the process. And there were things that she had remembered that I hadn't, and things that I remembered that she hadn't. And you know, we spoke about how we'd gone into her cupboard and found jumpers that had beautiful um, tones, and that became became the inspiration for the entry rugs. And um, you know, she'd spoken that her they work in the um, in the alcohol business, so um, and she'd spoken about how this big box had arrived from Ireland and she's like, Simone, what's this piece? I have no idea what this piece is. Uh, it's landed on my doorstep and I'm there scratching my head thinking, Jesus, I don't know what this delivery is. I really should know, but I don't know. And it ended up being a big Guinness, <laughs> a big Guinness keg that came, that came from their, their company um, from Ireland that, we, you know, we were both scratching our heads wondering what this um, piece was and apparently her husband wanted to put it into the whiskey room, <laughs> but that got oh shut gosh. down really gone to the shed so you know we had a bit of a giggle about various stories um and how she was very um she offers she had a great design eye and she wasn't entirely sure she even wanted to use a designer so in her mind she's like I'm going to call Simone and if she answers great and if she doesn't that's it doesn't matter I'm not going to use anyone and you know lucky that I did answer and when I walked into the house um she instantly felt at ease and didn't feel like it was going to be and myself versus I did my ideas versus hers that it was going to be a team and during COVID like we had all the lockdowns in Melbourne as you know and we that that project was happening at that time and I swear she was my savior because she was giving me an ability to step away from homeschooling and have phone calls and you know I was getting fabrics called in based on pictures on websites and we're doing zoom things and she'd be measuring things and she'd be putting tape 
up the wall masking tape and taping the length of the sofa and I go yeah yeah that's good or, or maybe just show me the, the version that's longer and so we had a really interactive um experience so it was very lovely to um to celebrate it yeah great it's so good um now I just want to ask you a couple but well, one thing that's popped up that I'm kind of curious about is I mean you've mentioned obviously you've got a business coach you've um invested in getting someone to help you more with publicity and PR. You obviously, um, you know, you're investing in yourself and you're investing in your business. Why is that important to you? And, you know, is that something that came naturally for you to do? Or, um, you know, because some people wouldn't even consider taking on a business coach. What spurred that decision and how has it helped you? So I would say in the early days, I mean, it was obviously me just doing everything. And then I brought on a team member, um, a lovely woman called Sarah Shinners, who helped me for about five years. It was just her and I. And that was when I was going through one, two, three babies. So she just did pretty much everything. You know, we, I, you know, we, we worked on the design together, but she executed everything. And then she left when she had her baby. Um, and so it's like karma. It's like I had a baby and I left and then she joined me and then she had a baby and she left. You know, it's kind of what happens. But I realized pretty quick that then I had to jump back in um, and reacquaint myself with how to do the job because I was able to do it at a very top level but I wasn't doing the nitty-gritty and I wasn't putting things in the schedule and I wasn't then um, on the end of the phone when a delivery hadn't happened or had gone to the wrong address or it had arrived broken. And so I think I got a bit of a shock to my system as to how much work was actually required having had someone so incredibly efficient um, assist me uh, during that time where I was really in the trenches. Um, so I think it just came down to the work, you know, COVID actually meant that everyone was, as you know, invested in their houses, they were stuck in their houses. So the industry exploded. So, you know, had this perfect storm of staff members left, works gone berserk, homeschooling kids and there it was it there was no there was actually wasn't even a choice to it it is like either that or um I can't I wouldn't be able to survive the, the workload of coming in so it was funny um meeting Natasha who helped uh, was helping with my media relations that was just an um it's funny I had a chat to um a friend Tess from Alexander and Co in Sydney and uh, mentioned oh it would be great to have someone assist with that and by putting that out there to the universe Two days later, Natasha called. She'd been talking to Tess. Tess had mentioned me. Natasha had called me. And she only had the capacity to take on a few clients. So I felt very lucky that that conversation happened right when she was um, accepting uh, clients. The business coach, Aaron, his sister is my Reiki lady. So I get Reiki probably monthly. Um, she's a Reiki slash clairvoyant. So I get my my Reiki and get my, you know, get the cortisol levels back down. And then at the same time, I had this guidance from her which I know my husband if he listens to this will be rolling his eyes but anyway we have a good time and um she picks up on some pretty amazing things and then she said oh you should meet my my brother Aaron who does um coaching and at the point I, I originally started it as some just one-on-one -on -one personal coaching sessions and then I realized very quickly that whilst he had an incredible um ability as a personal coach that there was going to be a greater um, benefit to having him as a business coach. So he's helped in the HR space, onboarding team members, um, getting job descriptions refined because my job descriptions pretty much for all of the team 
we're all exactly the same. And he said, it's like you've got yourself and you've cloned yourself and you've cloned yourself again. Um, he said, really, what in, a, in order to have a scalable business, you've got to separate out the roles and you do this and the team do this and then once the design's done, then that logistics person comes in because their brain space or their their thinking is different. So you don't want to pull the designers out of their design space to start thinking about deliveries and trucks and storage and, and that kind of stuff. And he said the ability of bringing on this one extra person means the designers can then take on a couple of extra jobs because they're still going to be in this design space. And if you're thinking about one job, you might as well be thinking about five jobs because you're out there looking so you just have your peepers open for all your clients and so the efficiency that will bring um is going to be far outweigh the investment of bringing on this person and you're like oh that makes perfect sense as soon as you say it um he um what else does he do he if there's any kind of troubleshooting or there's been just um things that not problems but just things that we go we just haven't had the bandwidth to tackle it he has the bandwidth to tackle things um, we're having a meeting today where he's talking us through our process um, he's assisted with some pricing restructure and um, and he sort of talked to yeah so I think just I, I feel like at the moment sometimes I feel like every month hemorrhaging is the wrong word but you're like oh media person business coach da, da, da. but it also means that that eventually there's a business there that is scalable that means I can go away for two weeks or three weeks and 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 I did I was away for two weeks last week and I took emails off my phone and I felt like there was a structure in place that meant that I the buck just didn't just stop with me and it was so refreshing <laughs> so good I haven't actually put I haven't figured out how to put emails back on my phone and I'm wondering <laughs> how long I can go without it it's making me a lot less efficient and a lot less um uh, responsive and I feel like there's about 20 emails I've still got to get to but it means when I sit down and do them I'm not even like driving I was doing emails like this is terrible I've got three kids in the car and I'm looking at my phone and at a traffic light responding to an email so there comes a point where you just have to put the brakes on a little um, so yeah I'm really hoping that this investment is um, it leads to you know better client services greater referral you know charging you know elevating that fee structure and eventually it all kind of, you know, getting the press that brings you in the job. So you just, you do have to sort of have that period of time where you go that, that what's going out might feel like more than what's coming in, but just having that trust that the circle, you know, will close. And um, it's nice just having someone to defer to because, um, yeah, it's, it's amazing when you run your own business. Sometimes you just need to share a problem and, you know, they say a problem shared is a problem halved. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's been amazing. Yeah, no, it's incredible. I mean, it's incredible the business that you have built. And, I mean, I completely relate in the sense that, you know, we've got a sort of small team here um, with my different projects. And, yeah, it's that having that sort of fine balance between not having too many generalists and having more specialists. Mm -hmm. And that's mm. kind of at the point we're in. And also we've been kind of writing down our processes and getting all of that to happen because I think for a long time, you know, as a business owner, you know, you have that one person. And as you were telling that story, I mean, I've had that exact same situation where I've had like basically an assistant who's helped me with so many different areas of my business. And <laughs> to the point of, like you say, you know, you kind of go, I don't know how to upload, you know, for me like the podcast now anymore or whatever yeah. it is, you know? <laughs> um, you know, those sort of things. But um but yeah, it's it's really it's an exciting stage, but it's also you know someone who's been so invested in it and you know had my finger in so many different pieces of the pie, 
you know, that letting go process is, is another part of it. But, um, but yeah, so it's really interesting to hear your take on that. Um, I'm going to ask go you, oh, sorry, you go. Oh, sorry. So it's like letting go of everything so you can do what it is that you should be doing and, and, and really be able to do that really well. And I think it's, you, as you say, it's very easy to want to control every aspect of your business, but you know, you, you, you go to a dentist because of what they do. You go to an accountant because of what they do. And you just, I guess it's the same thing with your design. If you're a designer, you're a designer and you need to be able to go, that's what I do really well. And that's, what's going to bring in the bacon and that's, what's going to pay for the organization. And I need to make sure that I'm doing the best I can in that space. And if it means letting go of various areas, then yeah, it it, it is a tricky decision to make, but it's, um, it's definitely making my balance start to kind of come into play, which, you know, for the last eight years, there's been zero balance. So, um, I just have to start to think about quality of life. And, and even my husband called me up on it before we left and he said, darling, you know, our entire weekends or our evenings or everything we do at the moment revolves around if you have a work commitment, not an event or something, he said, but you, you need to get to a point where, um, it's the other way around. And it was a bit of a shock to, and it's taken him about three years to say anything because he's very patient. Um, uh, but he was so right. And so I think there comes a point where you go, what, like, what's the, what's the whole, what's the purpose? Like, why are we really doing this? And, and at what point can we start to sort of enjoy life and not be on that like constant, um, hamster wheel. So, um, yeah, I'm a driven person and it's taking a lot to kind of start to sort of wind back a few clicks, but I think that's where, uh, I am. And after going on that holiday and taking emails off my phone, I hope, <laughs> I hope I can maintain <laughs> that pace more so yeah. than the pace that I was running at. Well, yeah, like you say, I mean, it's about being sustainable in the long term, isn't it? I'm kind of no. interested in, um, and your take on this next question that I've got about Instagram, because Instagram is something, I mean, I love how you sort of show up in that space, but it's also something that you could potentially outsource to somebody else. I mean, are you kind of managing your, your account? Is that something it can be, you know, yes. a huge source of inspiration, but also a huge time suck. How do you, <laughs> how do you manage your relationship with Instagram and how you choose to show up and what you choose to share? Um, cause that's something that people can sometimes really struggle with, you know, like, what do I even put out there, you know, and even with all the changes with the algorithms and all of that sort of side mm-hmm. of things. I think I'm lucky that I got onto it early enough that the following grew to a point that gives you that credibility. And now I'm just, I've probably taken my foot off the gas a little, a little bit. Um, I guess we've had sessions as we all would have, where you go, what are your pillars and what's your, um, your programming. And I know that our various pillars in a loose way are sharing, um, about what's on happening on site, um, you know, fabrics and, um, inspiration, um, those little kind of grids of, 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 uh, makers and artists that we want to share um some project imagery I mean it's a very sanitized version no one wants to see the kids cracking the shits and you know screaming like I I try not to do too much with the kids I didn't want to be that kind of in that mummy blogger space I wanted to try and I mean the kids shop you know occasionally but I didn't want it to be them to form um a sort of a big piece of the pie. Melissa from the team definitely um, assists with, with Instagram and Natasha's doing a, a little bit. But I would say you kind of go in, in waves where you're like super motivated about like we went to Milan and Paris and we were like posting three times a day and then I think this week it's been about two. So I've lost a bit of the mojo. Um, but I feel like it's just having that, making that time to sit down, 
get your calendar, your, your sort of pre-populating um, calendar and go, I know that I've got at least you know X amount of posts coming in this week that if I didn't think about it, there was some automation to it. Um, and then as your day progresses or your week progresses, you have that more, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, sorry, I've lost the word, but it's more, I guess not authentic, but it's like, oh, we're, we're here. Like so, yes, kind of a, yeah, yeah. I'm here now, and I've seen this. Or um, so I would say that I probably need to throw a bit more time at it. I lost a bit of the mojo when it was all the advertising was coming up, and I felt like I'd open it, and all I would see was was posts from accounts that I didn't follow. And um, it sometimes you wonder how much of people, how much of you people want to see, and are you sort of is it a bit of the you don't want to have the Simone show, so. But then having said that, if you don't post, then you start to lose that relevance in that in the algorithm. And I don't know. I At the moment, like the clients that I'm building and working with probably aren't necessarily Instagram followers. They're maybe more referrals. So you wonder, are you better off doing your work and doing it really well and investing in, in meetings with um, architects and building your clients? And then Instagram is more of a folly or are you trying to use that as a, um, as a business tool? Um, I try not to do too too many sponsored posts, but I do know that obviously is the ability for a, a more of a passive income stream by doing some posts, and then that obviously really helps you then, you know, with your with um with the business. So I, I I'm not sure. I think I've just lost a bit of the mojo at the moment um, because I don't want to be like it is. A, it's a very sanitized version of life and design, and I wonder sometimes I. I I, I worry that everything looks a bit too sparkly. Um, it's not reality, yeah, no, but yeah, mm. yeah. <laughs> but yeah. people don't really want to see reality. Stages. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, completely. I mean, I think we all go through stages. I know that. Um, yeah, I was, I was kind of going through a stage like that. I mean, I go through it periodically where I'm like, you know, I just sometimes I don't even want to be on it, and you know, I just <laughs> think oh, this is such a waste of time. It's just such a time suck. Everything just starts to look and feel all the same. And but then there are other things that happen, and then I get really excited to share it. You know, so it just mm-hmm. yeah, I think it just you got to go with the flow of what you're feeling at the time, and maybe mm-hmm. if you're feeling uninspired, just to sort of pull your foot back a little bit and just kind of mm-hmm. you know put that time and energy into something that lifts you up and then you know when you're feeling excited again then you know go for it sort of thing so yeah maybe it's I need interesting to do to a bit of a call take. yeah I should do a call out maybe to the to the audience and just say what things are you, are you enjoying and what things would you like to see more of and um, I thought about um, I haven't got very good with reels yet but I thought about in, in the highlights that actually that one per highlight could be a project. So rather than the client, so you might say, okay, this is project X. Um, and then the first, and then the, it's like the site visit or seeing it, you know, at lockup or it's going on a fabric palette play session. And then so if a client, if a, a follower were to go click, 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 click through one highlight in a very, in, you know, in a time-lapse version can see what's transpired over a year. Um, I thought that would be an interesting way of sort of, um, of of having sharing what we do but in a way that a client goes, I want to see what bringing a stylist on actually involves and they can kind of see per project and see it from lock-up to photo shoot and beyond. Um, but then I get to side, I'm so busy chatting or talking or, or making notes that I walk away and go, oh, my God, I didn't even get any photos of that. So probably need to like bring in some some ammunition there and have, have someone who's like, okay, I'm coming to shadow you on this session and my role is just to like document it 
because you know you can't do everything at once. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, you know, I, no. I'm very thankful because it, that it's given me a credibility and um, that you, you can't buy. You know, you can't you can't buy the access that it gives you when you've got seventy plus followers. It's it, it gives you instant instant street cred mm. for sure. No, it's great. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. I've loved it, listening to all of your answers. Now, we've just got a few at the end that I like to kind of run through. Um, these are kind of, I guess, a little bit broader picture ones, but just give a little bit of an insight into you and, um, yeah, what inspires you and, and other little bits and pieces like that. So the first one is, um, which five words best describe you? Well, I think enthusiastic. We've chatted about that. Enthusiastic, curious. Um, interested, kind, and driven. I think that sounds pretty much like you from what I've heard today. <laughs> no, I'm not sure what order. Maybe the driven yeah. comes before the kind, depending on the day, or the kind comes before <laughs> But always enthusiastic. What's the best life or career lesson you've learned? Humility that when things don't go to plan, that it, uh, people can forgive anything if you approach it with um, with humility. And I, there's been times where I've had um, things arrive at jobs where I may have made a mistake or they've been dropped by a delivery person that I've recommended um, and that's never fun and I know clients have sort of, you know, flown off the handle on the odd occasion and sometimes probably expected maybe me to um, – to again, you know, push back. And I think as soon as you can say, I agree with you, I apologize. It's not perfect. It's not what you paid for. And we're going to fix this. No one can ever, no one can, 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 you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like if you, I think, yes, I think humility, if you, you do your best, we're all human, things are going to go wrong. Um, but we want at the end of the day, you'll be happy and we will make sure of that. Then I think that's a really good skill. I think it's most important. Um, anyone can be creative. Anyone can, can, can be, um, any number of things, but I think you have to, have to have that, that quality to, um, have, you know, to be there for the long haul because no one wants a diva. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. What's your proudest career achievement? Oh, I reckon it's this year. I've uh, recently been nominated for Interior Designer of the Year for at the Idea Awards and I recently flew to Brisbane to do the talk. I think I touched on that a couple of times in the chat and I'm one of six and I'm up against some pretty, pretty incredible companies. So even if the nomination is as far as it gets, um, yeah, that would be a career highlight uh, for sure. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, what's been your best decision? I reckon the, hmm, I would say what there's so there's lots of lots of fun decisions, but certainly over the last six months, having the business coach has been amazing because sometimes what you see looking out is very different to what people see looking in, and you can't be expected to be able to see through both lenses. So I think having that insight. Can you hear Ralph? That's yeah. my great day. Just growling and oh, having right. a bit of a late. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad it wasn't a fluff because the great day fluff is loud. <laughs> just, just frolicking in the sun, pouring into our house. I, I thought it was a motorbike or something, but <laughs> <laughs> no, it's Ralph. 
Um, who inspires you? It's funny. This sounds like a real wanker answer. You've got to inspire yourself. <laughs> like, I mean, obviously, uh, there's there's a, there's a lot of um, a lot of incredible designers. Um, you know, particularly, I I, I love um, Pamela Shamshiri from the states. I um, I'm inspired by lots of designers, but I think you've got to be really careful getting too inspired by your peers because then you either start to feel like you're um, you know that FOMO, oh, they've picked that, they've done that, and then all of a sudden you start to question yourself. So I think you've got to actually look within and and know that what you're doing is the best that you can do and 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 then I think so. I think you have to find that inspiration um, almost internally because obviously we, we, we're influenced by um, what we see. We're influenced by what's coming through in trends and and, and showrooms and fabrics and, and, and fairs, but I think you have to be able to, have that inspiration flame inside or you or you know it'll at some point you'll you'll wane you know so I think you got to keep that keep it alive yeah no it's great weird answer. I like that answer. <laughs> yeah no, no no I like it I like it um what are you passionate about I'm passionate about making people happy and that's happy either through the journey that we've taken them on or happy with how they live or where they live or happy about how they've been um, treated as a client in the studio or happy about how maybe we've come at a time where they've recently got divorced and now on their own and we've provided a bit of a bit of joy for them. Um, I th- so that that's what I'm really passionate about. Um, you know, it's yes, it's about running a business and creating a lifestyle and, and all this sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, the most satisfaction I get is when I've, I've made a client happy. And there was one I met the other day who I, most of the project had been on Zoom and I actually didn't really, or, or emails, and I wasn't sure that I had delivered. She, she didn't often give a lot away on email. When I met her, she was quite gushing and, and really happy. And I was like, and that just made me feel extraordinary. So I think that's what I strive to do. Yeah, great. I'm getting on to you. What dream do you still want to fulfill? Well, I would say that the dream I want to fulfill is to um, work with the, the house that I've, we've just moved into that um, I'm sitting in right now. It's a house that my husband and I chased off market for close to 18 months and it was, it's, it was like our it's our dream home. And we're in here. I've already been here for about two or three nights. Like I said, we moved in, went on holidays, came back. Um, and and I think my my dream at the moment is to slowly but surely uh, to preserve to preserve it, but also um, bring bring kind of our touch to it. So yeah, the dream is where I, what I'm sitting surrounded by right now. I'm living the dream. Just got to, now. Just got to make it happen. Now, I know you've had a kind of intense, um, you know, couple of days, weeks moving into this place, but what are you reading, you know, or a recent book that you've read? What's something that's been on your bedside table or, you know, on your coffee table? Can you share a a book that you've recently been reading? Just um, do more of the audio books from Audible only because I love, I mean, I've read a few books on the recent holiday and they were just sort of trashy romance novels. I can't remember what they were called. Um, but but I, I, I think um, the Atomic Habits book, um, audio book I've just listened to and I'm about to listen to again. And um, so I, I would say I'm not so much of a reader, read up, more of an audio, audio book 
person. Um, and I would say that, you know, I loved Claire Bonich's um, audio book and I loved, um, you know, the chiffon trenches. So anything about real people, um, or real people's stories, I probably um, enjoy or a little, a little bit of self-help. I mean, we all love a self-help books, you know, try and get those habits right. So um, I'm probably in, into, um, it's funny because with Claire, even reading her, listening to her audio book, I reached out to her on Instagram and we've now struck up a, a bit of a, a friendship. So I, it's amazing how the world has become so small that you can read about people, listen about people and reach out to them and next thing you're having a cup of tea with them. It's mind boggling. So yeah, not much of a reader. I think with three kids under eight, you there's not a lot of reading going on. But um, any chance I can, I'll put my headphones in and meander. Yeah, no, I completely understand. What about, um, do you listen to podcasts? Are there any that you really enjoy listening to? I, I'd love to listen to more. I um, I feel like I don't. I feel like I don't have my rhythm with the podcast. Like I don't have not subscribed to a lot of them. It'll be a little bit ad hoc where I'll be on a drive um, down the coast. So I, I reckon I need to get a list off off you. Um, I used to love the the birthing podcasts when you know my, I was in sort of ba- baby land, and I listened to some design ones. I but I, funnily enough, the the one that really got me hooked, which is nothing to do with design at all, was Stuart Diver's um, podcast. The the gentleman that was in the Threadbow disaster, and he talks about all natural disasters. And you know, there's there's a bit of a um, um, I love snowboarding and um, and and surfing. So you know, sometimes just a a good old like. Um, you know, um, natural disaster or I'm listening to the one about um, Everest, um, the, the, you know, Everest climb, some people climbing Everest and, and, and all it sort of went, went haywire with them. So yeah, I know it's a bit kind of not really designy, but yeah, if anything about a natural disaster or outdoors or a journey or a, a, a momentous feat being overcome, this seems to be my little <laughs> podcast, um, folly. Yeah, no, it's good. I mean, or, it's or, good or, to have, you know, listen. other things. <laughs> Or I'll listen to them if I've been on one and then I'll be in the car listening to it and the kids will be like, is that you, mum? (laughs) (laughs) And finally, what piece of advice would you give to your younger self? Oh, um, I think this is a bit of a bit boring, but I I definitely think when I was in high school, I was very, um, I was quite driven and it was all about, okay, what what am I going to get? What am I going to study? And I just think life, it's, it's, it's such, such a journey to be enjoyed that anything that you want to do, you, you can and, and that you don't need that credibility or that certificate or that um, endorsement to be able to do it. And I think that's been, you know, a big part of my story is that whole, you know, never studied design and, you know, found my feet and, and created a, um, a, a business. So um, my younger self is I shouldn't have worried so much about all that, just knowing, just have the knowing that if you've got the enthusiasm and um, you can, you can get there. I think that's probably yeah, definitely. I was the kind of kid that had all the notes in the shower and the palm cards on the bus. And I mean, I tortured myself going through high school, trying to figure out how to, you know, be the best I could be. And I think I should have just um, had a bit more of, a, of the, the knowing that, that you know, good things will happen to those that work hard and um, they create good, create opportunities. Yeah. Well, you've certainly done that. So um, thank you so (laughs) much. I I really, really appreciate you being so honest and open about, you know, your journey and the lessons you've learned and your process and 
I think it's really going to give a lot of people, um, yeah, like a really helpful insight into, you know, what it takes to grow a business in this interior design industry and, um, you know, the sort of, yeah, the strategies and the process that you need to go through. And, um, and also on a more personal note, I really just want to thank you as well for opening the doors to your incredible shack on, um, Philip Island and um, allowing us to shoot at my book style. You were so generous allowing us to stay there and just, yeah, I could just see how you go above and beyond with everything. So I really appreciate that too. But thank you for for being here today and um, I'm really grateful. Thank you. Thank you, Natalie, for reaching out and for, for, you know, featuring the book and hopefully you'll love to come here when I've got my, oh, when I got it all together. Sorry, Ralphie's getting up and about now. Um, and I really, yeah, I really look forward to meeting you in person one of these days. So thank you for your support um, of my business as well. And, and thank you to the listeners. And I look forward to hearing from anyone, if any, you know, if anyone wants to reach out on Instagram, if they've listened to it, you know, I'd love, love you to make contact and, and say g'day and, yeah, let's 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 have a coffee soon. Let's get together. <laughs> so good. Thanks, Thank Natalie. you. Great. You're so welcome. All of the links and info for this episode are at nataliewalton.com forward slash podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you can get a direct download of the latest episode. And I really appreciate when you take a minute to rate and review, as well as share the love with someone you know who might benefit from this episode or on social media. If you'd like to access a range of free resources, come visit my website, nataliewalton.com. Thank you to Jaeger Media for producing this podcast. And I would also like to acknowledge the people of the Bundjalung Nation where it was recorded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. I look forward to connecting again soon. I'm Natalie Walton and you've been listening to Imprint. Imprint.